Right now I want to have a word of prayer before we get started into our message uh, for this morning. So if you will please bow your heads with me. Let's, let's come to the Lord together. Father in heaven, we thank you so very, very much for your wonderful blessings that you continually pour out upon us, your mercy, your long-suffering, your forgiveness. We thank you for the Sabbath day, that we may come apart from the world and, and spend time uh, strictly with, with you and with like believers, that we may be encouraged and lifted up and, uh, and worship thee in spirit and in truth and sing praises to thy name. We are very thankful for Jesus who came and died for our sins and was resurrected because He overcame and He has shown us the way for He is the way and He is the truth and the life. And We thank You so very much for such uh, the most precious gift that's ever been given to humanity. We thank You for the angels You send to watch over us and protect us. And Father, we thank You for the Holy Spirit. We ask for that Spirit this morning as we get into your word, we pray for um, the Holy Spirit to give us discernment and wisdom. Help us to understand the truth that you share. And may it motivate us uh, to not only seek your will for our lives, but to share the truth that you have given to us with others. We're coming close to the end now. The end of this great controversy. And we wish to be ready. We wish our families and our friends and, and neighbors to be ready for Christ's second coming. Please give me the words to speak this morning. We thank you for hearing this prayer because we ask it in the blessed name of Jesus who is so worthy. Amen. I have a window that keeps popping up here right in my view of everything. I don't know what the deal is. Anyway, I have entitled this particular message, Shock and Awe. Shock and Awe. Shock and Awe is actually a military doctrine based on the use of overwhelming power, dominant battlefield maneuvers, and spectacular displays of force to actually paralyze the enemy's perception of the battlefield. And what, it, what its intent is, is to destroy their will to fight. I think most Americans today think of this doctrine, this military doctrine, because of the U.S. response to Saddam Hussein's invasion into Kuwait when U.S. General Schwarzkopf demonstrated the, the speed and overwhelming might of this country's military in driving him back into Iraq in just over a week. Just over a week. Shock and awe. But it can be argued that this doctrine has been around for a very long time, dating back to uh, the Roman legions. In fact, you can find many examples of this doctrine being implemented in every war. But Germany made it more common in what they called the Blitzkrieg in World War II. Blitzkrieg meaning lightning war. Lightning war. The Japanese definitely had their version of the, quote, Blitzkrieg. December 7th is the anniversary of the day that the Japanese military attacked the U.S. naval base there at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, 1941. The U.S. experienced the shock and awe of the Japan Navy that terrible morning. You could say that's shock and awe. And, uh, you know, the date passes virtually unnoticed today by many people. But I remember it every year, not just because I'm a history nut, <laughs> but because I knew a person who was there. And uh, we talked one time, and he spoke to me about some of the horrors of that day. Uh, reluctantly, I would add. Uh, but he did. And uh, he also spoke of, of the courage and the, the bravery of many he knew who died for what they believed to be a just cause. And as I was reminiscing about the words of this particular friend who passed away a few years ago, I was prompted to read a few history accounts of some battles in the Pacific, other battles in the Pacific that followed Pearl Harbor. One battle was on a little island, not more than six square miles in size, and it was called Peleliu. 
was the island of Peleliu. And uh, they had a battle on that that little island. The Marines were ordered during this this uh, <clears throat> campaign to cross a decimated airstrip in broad daylight and under the guns of the enemy. It sounded like a suicide mission. I mean, wouldn't that sound like that to you? But they obeyed their orders and they crossed that open field. And, of course, many of them were killed. And as I read of this account, the question that crossed my mind over and over was, why would anyone choose to obey such an order that most likely would end his life? As the surviving Marines, few though there was, gathered after the battle, one private said to his commanding officer that he had never been so scared in all of his life, and he wondered how an order that cost hundreds of lives could have been given knowing the price. And his commander thought for a moment and replied that the only reason that could reconcile his mind in the loss of so many of his men was that their cause was just. Now there can be arguments as to whether the cause was just or not. That isn't what I want, want to consider. I want you to consider the example in a spiritual sense. Those Marines were commissioned to cross that open airfield under heavy fire, and they were given the power to do what they were commanded to do. They were empowered by the United States of America to do what they were commanded to do. They were trained, they were commissioned, and they were empowered. And let's think about this spiritually in relation to Jesus for a moment. In Revelation 13.8 it says that Jesus was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The decision that Christ would die for the guilty race was reached before the world was created. That's what we're told. And confirmed at the time that man fell there in the Garden of Eden. The Godhead made an agreement. They came together. They made an agreement that Jesus would become a human being forever. That's a mystery, isn't it? The mystery of godliness, the mystery of his humanity. He became a human being forever. He would go through the struggles of humanity that was at war against sin and Satan. And they empowered him, the Godhead, they empowered him to carry out his commission to save mankind. Jesus was commissioned, you see, friends, to cross an airfield decimated by sin in open daylight while under heavy assault from the enemy. And it begs the same question that was asked by that Marine private to his commanding officer. Why was this command given when the risks were so high? Why did God send His Son? Why did Jesus come? Because Godhead considered the cause to be just. And not just that, friends. Because the Bible tells us that God is love. This is a part of His character. In John 3, 16 and 17, those familiar verses, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. And in John 15, verses 13 and 14, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. This kind of love, agape, makes an intelligent decision to put self aside for the benefit of another. That's what it is. Even if the cost seems ridiculously high to everyone else. You know the old hymn, Jesus paid it all. You know that old hymn, Jesus paid it all. The cost was high, but Jesus still crossed that field, you see. Jesus paid it all. Praise His holy name. We've previously discovered in our study series, This is My Body that the body of Christ, the church, 
must be identified. We went through a series on that. Who and what the church is, right? We went through the next step, and that's it's to be organized. We did a series of studies on that. Now we're in the, the training part of that. They need to be trained and then commissioned. And once you've received basic training and a commission, you'll be given the power to carry out that commission. Just as we see... Uh, an example in today's military, friends. There is a general commission and a specific commission pertaining to individuals in the Lord's army, and then the army gives that person the power to carry out their orders. The same is true, you see, in the spiritual sense, in the biblical sense. But let's get a definition here. What does it mean to empower? What's it mean to empower? Webster's Dictionary, and I, uh, I always use the 1828 edition, it defines empower this way, to give legal or moral power or authority to, to give physical power, strength or force, to enable. I like that part. To enable. Let me ask you a question. In this, in his battle against uh, Satan here on earth, did Jesus ever use his own divine power to overcome? To have victory over Satan? Was he empowered by the, the Holy Spirit or was he divinely self-powered? Maybe is the way I can put it. In John 15 and verse 10, Jesus said, I have kept my Father's commandments. You remember that? He said, I've kept my Father's commandments. Did he do this under his own divine power? Or was he empowered by the Holy Spirit to do this? And this is very important to understand. This is where the majority of Christians fail in understanding the gospel. Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we know this, this story, we know the scene. Put yourself there. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying to the Heavenly Father. And in Luke 22, verse 42, he said, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. You remember that? Remove this cup from me. If, you're, if you be willing, remove this cup from me. Then he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. At that moment in time, the humanity of Jesus, okay, not his divine, his divinity, the humanity of Jesus wanted to escape. It wanted to escape. It did not want to cross that decimated airfield in broad daylight under the guns of the enemy. But Jesus chose not to listen to his humanity because his cause was just, even if it cost him his eternal life. That's important to understand. There are many people today that believe that uh, it was just a forensic thing that Jesus did. He came and took the body of a human. He died. He really didn't suffer. He died knowing he'd be resurrected again. But that's not what the Bible teaches, friends. Eli, Eli, lava sabachthani, Jesus said. Father, Father, why have thou forsaken me? Jesus felt, he felt what it would be like to be forgotten of God. The very next verse there in Luke 22, verse 43, it says, And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. Now, friends, Jesus did not use his own divine power to gain victory over the enemy, but he was empowered by the Holy Spirit to carry out his commission. And here at this moment, an angel was sent by God to strengthen him. And friends, God has given each of us a, 
a personal commission to overcome sin by believing and acting on His promises, an individual commission to reach all within our influence through our talents and spiritual gifts, and a denominational commission as a people, as His people, to go make disciples and prepare people for His second coming. And the, the beauty of that is that with that commission comes the empowerment from God to fulfill it. And we too, like Jesus there at Gethsemane, may be strengthened by angels from on high. The wonderful promises of God, friends. Philippians 4 and 13, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. All things. The devil, he tells us, you can't possibly overcome. This particular sin is too strong for you. But Jesus says, I'll lift you up. Lift up your head and listen. Believe me. From Christ's Object Lessons, page 333. This is a beautiful, beautiful thing. As the will of man cooperates with the will of God, it becomes omnipotent becomes all-powerful. What a beautiful, beautiful promise God has given us. If our will, and we decide to do God's will, which is what Jesus decided there in Gethsemane, our will is combined with God's will. When that happens, it becomes omnipotent. She goes on, she says, whatever is to be done at His command may be accomplished in His strength. All His biddings are enablings. All His biddings are enablings. God does not ask us to do something that He does not enable us to do. But what is the key? The key is to have Christ abiding in the heart and in the mind. Not to do our will, but to surrender our will to His. To have the faith that Jesus had and exercise that faith to do all that He asked. To cooperate with His will. That's the key. And we as Adventists, we hear, you know, and are very familiar with Revelation 14 verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. We hear a lot about the keeping of the commandments of God we hear very little, I think, of the, having the faith of Jesus. We keep the faith of Jesus. That's not having faith in Jesus, though that is a part of the gospel, isn't it? But it's having the same faith that Jesus had. No other way can we keep the commandments. That's a lesson we learn by understanding our Savior. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we're promised power. But ye shall receive power. After that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. But ye shall receive power. The Greek word for power in this verse is dunamis. Our English word dynamite is derived from the Greek word dunamis. This is a supernatural power that's being spoken of here. And it's received only by those upon whom the Holy Ghost comes. That's what Jesus is saying. And the promise is you will receive power. And this power is for overcoming sin and this power is for witnessing to the world. It gives power within. Power to proclaim the gospel and power to lead others to God. Because our humanity, friends, we shy away from such things, don't we? We don't have the courage to do these things. To stand alone and speak the gospel. No, that's got to come from God. The thing is, He has commissioned us to do it to do that and he has provided the power and the courage and everything needed to do that 
Now Satan works hard to counterfeit the power of God in an effort to deceive what the Bible says is the very elect, God's people. And the same holds true with empowering the body of Christ, empowering the church, friends. There is a counterfeit. So we must understand and be grounded in the truth about this or what's going to happen. We'll be deceived. Now I'll get to this counterfeit in a moment. But what I want to do, I want to take a look at the the truth first and then we can detect the false more readily. Amen? Let's begin by looking at Psalm 77. We'll start with verse 11. Psalm 77, beginning with verse 11. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. I will meditate also of all thy work and talk of thy doings. So he, the psalmist, he's setting something up here, isn't he? He's wanting us to remember the works of the Lord. He wants us to remember those things of old. And in verse 13 he says, Thy way, O God, is in the what? Sanctuary. Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? And so let's remember the wonders of the Lord. Let's see His way of empowering His people by looking at the sanctuary. The sanctuary message. Now the the book of Exodus gives us the history of how God used Moses to to lead his people out of the bondage of Egypt and, and that the night before they were to leave was what was called the Passover. Where the angel of the Lord passed over all the homes which by faith had the blood of the Lamb placed upon their doorposts. And the Passover is symbolic of what? It's symbolic of the death of Christ, isn't it? As the Passover lamb died, so Christ died on Calvary. The blood of the lamb delivered Israel uh, of old from being destroyed by the angel. And the blood of Jesus now reconciles us to God, saving us from being destroyed. You see the symbology there? And here's where it gets even more interesting. I believe, friends. I just have uh, gone through the book of Exodus again. It's just so wonderful. The Passover is also symbolic of the resurrection as is typified in the wave sheaf offering. Now stay with me now. According to the Jewish sacred calendar, now the Jews, they had two different calendars. We're talking about the sacred calendar. On the 14th day of Abib, which was the day that Jesus actually was crucified, that Passover Friday, being harvest time, a certain portion of a field of barley was marked off to be cut down for what was called the wave sheaf offering. Reading from the book The Sanctuary Service by M. L. Andreasen, page 217, notice what he says. He says, On the fourteenth day of Abib, a certain portion of a field of barley was marked off to be cut down in preparation for the presentation on the sixteenth. Three selected men cut the barley in the presence of witnesses, having already tied the sheave together before cutting them. After being cut, the sheaves were all tied together into one sheaf and presented before the Lord as a sheaf of the first fruits. Not until this was done could Israel begin to use any of the fruits of the field. It's important to understand that. Not until that was done. Now the barley was cut down, he says, two days before it was used as the wave sheaf. Did you notice that it was first tied together before it was cut down? Like Christ was bound. Okay. And then it was cut from the field like Jesus was cut or crucified. And this was done on the 14th of Abib. Jesus was killed on Friday. The sheaf 
rested on the Sabbath, just as Jesus rested in the tomb. Then the sheaf was waved after the Sabbath. Notice Leviticus 23 and verse 11. It says, And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you. On the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. This wave sheaf offering was done the morrow after the Sabbath, we read there in Leviticus, which was the 16th day of Abib, which fell on the first day of the week. What happened the first day of the week following the Sabbath that Christ laid in the tomb? He was resurrected, wasn't he? Let's go on. Sanctuary service, page 218 this time. Brother Andreasen, he says, the Passover is symbolic of the resurrection as typified in the wave sheaf. The type is perfect even as to time. Pay attention to this. God is a God of order, isn't he, friends? Pay attention to this. The lamb died on the evening of the 14th day of Abib. On the 16th, the morrow after the Sabbath, the first fruits which had previously been cut down were presented before the Lord. Christ died Friday evening. He rested in the grave over the Sabbath. The morrow after the Sabbath, Christ the first fruits was raised from the grave and presented himself before the Lord for acceptance. Remember, um, Jesus had said to Mary, Touch me not for I am not yet ascended to my Father. Remember that? He had to go to heaven. He had to present himself as the first fruits to, to gain acceptance. When Christ arose the first day of the week, it was necessary for him, this is Andreasen again, to, for him to ascend to the Father to hear the words of God's acceptance of the sacrifice. On the cross, his soul was in darkness. The Father hid His face from Him. In despair and agony, He cried out, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? Matthew 27, 46. Now the resurrection had taken place. The first thing Christ must do was to appear in the presence of the Father and hear from Him the blessed words that His death was not in vain, but that the sacrifice was accepted as amply sufficient. So he must ascend to the heavens above and hear from the Father himself the words of assurance. Then he must come back to earth again to those who were yet sorrowing for his death, not knowing that he had been raised, and show himself openly. This he did. Now did you pay attention to the timeline? Jesus was crucified on Friday. That's the 14th of Abib. Rested in the grave on the Sabbath, the 15th of Abib. Then was resurrected on the first day of the week, the 16th of Abib. He was resurrected as the wave sheaf offering unto the Lord. Now I want you to to keep this timeline in mind as we go back to Sinai. Let's go back there to the children of Israel. Here they are at Sinai. After the first Passover in Egypt, Moses led the children of Israel to the base of Mount Sinai, and on the 50th day, God gave the law to His people. On the 50th day. He wanted to empower the body by writing His law in their hearts. We know that they rejected this attempt and, and instead presumptuously announced that all that the Lord had said, they would do. And what happened because of that? Well, they were in the desert for 40 years because of their disobedience. Hundreds of years later, friends, the true Passover lamb comes and he dies upon a cross of wood. Jesus Christ the righteous. Now I want you to notice something. Jesus died on what was, what? it was a cross of wood, wasn't it? Spread out, his arms spread out, his He was nailed there. This is from Shadows, the book Shadows of His Sacrifice by Leslie Harding, page 75. 
And speaking of the Passover, back there with Moses, notice he says, the Paschal lamb, that's the Passover lamb, was to be eaten roasted. Edie, a religious author from the 1800s, explains how Jews roasted this lamb. They passed a rod from its throat to its vent. That's from the mouth to its rectum. Okay? They passed a rod from its throat to its vent so that it would be rotated as we do on a pit barbecue. They spread out its chest cavity with another stick at right angles to that rod. Thus, for 1,500 years, the paschal sacrifice had been spitted on a cross of wood without a bone broken. Crucified, the lamb was prepared to be eaten with bitter herbs. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice and came of His own volition to prove that man can live a sin-free life, friends. He was nailed to a cross, the Passover lamb. He came to prove what man could do when he is empowered from God. Remember to follow the timeline, right? Let's go back to that. This is back to Emil Andreessen's book, The Sanctuary Service, pages 219 to 220. Pentecost came 50 days after the presentation of the wave sheaf on the 16th of Abib, or Abib. Penta means five, doesn't it? Pentecost, 50 days after the presentation of the wave sheaf. From that day shall you number fifty days, and you shall offer a new meat offering unto the Lord. You shall bring out of your habitations two wave loaves of two-tenth deals. They shall be a fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. Wait a minute. Isn't it supposed to be unleavened bread? Ah, just a minute. Let's read on. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits unto the Lord. As the wave sheaf was presented at the beginning of the harvest before any of the new yield could be used, so Pentecost came at the end of the harvest of all grains, not only of barley, as in the case of the wave sheaf, and represented the joyous acknowledgement of Israel's dependence upon God as the giver of all good gifts. At this time, it was not a sheaf that was presented, but two wave loaves of fine flour baked with leaven, together with seven lambs without blemish of the first year, and one young bullock and two rams. This was accompanied by a goat for a sin offering and two lambs for a peace offering. In the Passover celebration, it was particularly enjoined that... Um, where am I... It was particularly enjoined that no leaven was to be eaten or found. At Pentecost, two loaves were to be presented baked with leaven. The wave sheaf is Christ the first fruits. He was without sin. That's why it was to be without leaven. But notice this. The bread is not God's immediate creation. It is partly man's work. It is imperfect. So it is mixed with leaven but it is accepted. It is waved before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. That's why it was mixed with leaven. Because God is working with humanity now. Now what happened at Pentecost following the Lord's ascension? He had imperfect people that were unorganized and in disunity, and before they could be trusted with power from God for witnessing to the world the gospel, what had to happen? Let's look at Acts chapter 2. What happened? Verse 1, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with what? One accord. Before they were what? They were... Bickering who's going to be the greatest. But now they're in unity. They're one accord in one place. 
Then suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with what? The Holy Ghost. And began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. But I want you to pay attention to this. What had to happen... What had to have happened before the Lord could empower His body of believers to empower His church? They had to be all of one accord. And this is what happened. Jesus ascended and for those ten days before Pentecost, they were repenting. They were praying. They were working out their differences. Luke 24 and verse 53 says that they were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. The jealousies revealed in their, their failure to heal, the, for example, the demon-possessed boy, in their striving for high position and in refusing to wash one another's feet, had all been swept from their hearts by the agonies of the crucifixion of Christ. the glory of the resurrection and majesty of the ascension. Their master had risen on the day of the offering of the wave sheaf of barley, friends, which typified himself, the first fruits. And over a period of 40 days after the resurrection, that wave sheaf offering, he had repeated contact with them on earth, didn't he? Jesus walked with them, taught them, was seen by thousands of people. But then He ascended. And ten more days had remained till the day of Pentecost. Remember, the fifty days after the wave sheaf offering of Christ, the first fruits. And while they waited, the promise of the Father to come. What did they do? What would this promise bring forth? Well, the ten days of expectancy had been ten days of earnest prayer offered in unity of desire. And this is the unity that must characterize the people of God if they are to be empowered as a people to do the work of Jesus. We must be in one accord. We must be organized with unity of desire. From the book Acts of the Apostles, Pages 36 and 37. As the disciples waited for the fulfillment of the promise, they humbled their hearts in true repentance and confessed their unbelief. The disciples prayed with intense earnestness for a fitness to meet men in their daily intercourse to speak words that would lead sinners to Christ putting away all differences, all desire for the supremacy. They came close together in Christian fellowship. They drew nearer and nearer to God. And as they did this, they realized what a privilege had been theirs in being permitted to associate so closely with Christ. Sadness filled their hearts as they thought of how many times they had grieved Him by their slowness of comprehension, their failure to understand the lessons that for their good He was trying to teach them. Does that happen to you? I think it happens to us all, doesn't it? We sometimes are overcome with sadness because we, we too often grieve Him by our decisions and our slowness to comprehend. Slowness to obey. She goes on, she says, these days of preparation were days of deep heart searching. We're in a time, friends. We, we're in a time that's, that's just before the return of Christ. Probation is soon to close. Now's the time to be preparing ourselves and others. Now's the time to be preparing ourselves with deep heart searching. 
the disciples felt their spiritual need and cried to the Lord for the holy unction that was fit was to fit them for the work of soul saving. They did not ask for a blessing for themselves merely. They were weighted with the burden of the salvation of souls. And friends, when we each become more and more like Christ, that burden increases in our hearts. Why did Jesus come here and die? Why did He become a human being? He was weighted with the burden of the salvation of humanity. And that will be be reflected in those who have given their hearts to Him and follow Him. For His Spirit will live in them. She says, They realized that the gospel was to be carried to the world, and they claimed the power that Christ had promised. So, they recognized that they needed to be empowered. Christ had given them a commission, but they saw themselves in view of the cross and said, how, how can we do this? There's no way we can do this. We have to be empowered to do it. So they recognized that they needed to be empowered from God. They claimed that promise of Jesus to do what He had commissioned. They claimed it in faith that Jesus would keep that promise. Let's go back to the sanctuary service, page 220. Pentecost is symbolic of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. As the wave loaves were offered, 50 days after the wave sheaf was presented, so there were just 50 days between the resurrection of Christ and the outpouring of the Spirit on Pentecost. Forty of these days Christ spent on earth instructing and helping His disciples. Then He ascended, and for ten days the eleven disciples continued in prayer and supplication until the day of Pentecost was fully come. With Pentecost came the fullness of the Spirit. So here they spent those ten days in agony of heart, searching their souls, repenting, getting closer to Christ. And because they were getting closer to Christ, they became closer to each other. They, be, they had a unity of desire to spread the gospel to the world, which was their commission. See, they were given the orders, but at first, they didn't know how to do it. They, didn't, they weren't empowered. They were reluctant. That's what humanity does. That's our reaction. Remember, we talked about Jesus in Gethsemane. His humanity said, Father, take this cup from me. But we have to choose to do His will, which is what Christ did. Chose to do the will of the Father. When we choose to do that, remember, when our will cooperates with the will of God, it becomes omnipotent. And that was evident there at Pentecost. What was the result of being empowered by God? Let's look at Acts 2. Let's go back to that. Verse 37. Peter had just given this, this call to all the people gathered there. It says, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. Pricked in their heart. They were heart sick. It hurt. To know that they were guilty. What do we do with this guilt? They were pricked in their heart and they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off even as many as the Lord our God shall call and with many other words did he testify and exhort saying save yourselves from this untoward generation who is he talking about there? Who had put Christ on the cross? 
Then they that gladly received his word were what? Baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about three thousand souls. And speaking of this, the book Acts of the Apostles, page 43, Peter urged home upon the convicted people the fact that they had rejected Christ because they had been deceived by priests and rulers. And that if they continued to look to these men for counsel and waited for them to acknowledge Christ before they dared to do so, they would never accept Him. These powerful men, though making a profession of godliness, were ambitious for earthly riches and glory. They were not willing to come to Christ to receive light. And beloved, here's the counterfeit. This is the counterfeit. It is in making a profession of godliness. It is in presumption and not faith. Paul tells us about this counterfeit power. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 1, he said, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Is anyone going to deny that we are living in the last days? And Paul said to Timothy, he said, In the last days, perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. They will be covetous, he says, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers, of those that are good. What a list. Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Pretty good list there, isn't it? Sounds like all the, the wicked people of the world, doesn't it? But is that who he's talking about? Look at verse 5. All these people that are doing these things, he says, having a form of godliness. They have a form of godliness. They profess to be followers of Christ. He says they have a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. There's that word again, dunamis. Dynamite. Power. They deny the power thereof from such turn away. Paul says. Now, Denying the power. What power is he speaking of? They have a form of godliness, but deny the power of what? Godliness. Is it the power of miracles and great feats that seem to defy natural law? No. Satan uses miracles to deceive. And it's a power it's it's very powerful. I mean it, it's actual supernatural power that he uses. But that's not the power being spoken of here. Paul is speaking about the power to overcome sin. The power to be like Jesus. And it only comes from the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the power of God to change our characters, to be in line with His. The power to witness to others what Jesus can do with a life committed to Him. This is the power that is denied, not the counterfeit power of Satan. From the book Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 380, notice this. Satan will work his miracles to deceive. He will set up his power as supreme. The church may appear as about to fall, but it does not fall. It remains while the sinners in Zion will be sifted out the chaff separated from the precious wheat. This is a terrible ordeal, but nevertheless it must take place. Notice this. None but those who have been overcoming by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony will be found with the loyal and true, without spot or stain of sin, without guile in their mouths. We must be divested of our self-righteousness and arrayed in the righteousness 
of Christ. Can I hear an amen? (laughs) The experience of Pentecost, beloved, is going to be repeated in a greater scale. God is looking for a generation of followers that He can trust to finish the harvest work and battle the beast with the shock and all that God provides. Will we be among those who are of one accord in the Lord and and be empowered to finish the work of preparing people for the second coming? That's the question, isn't it? Manuscript Releases, Volume 16, page 292. The sincere, true-hearted worker will not fail nor be discouraged, for God from His high and holy place looks upon the contrite one, and He will empower him at every step. He will set in action almighty agencies to warn the world to prepare to meet its God. God gives us a commission, we learn in our previous studies. And He doesn't just leave us to ourselves. (laughs) He gives us the power to carry out that commission. We see the example of Jesus. Jesus was commissioned to come here, not just to die for our sins, but to show us how to overcome, how to be righteous. And Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit, and that promise is for us, friends. Oh, beloved, we have a work to do before God can trust us with this power as a body of believers. We must be as the early disciples were, in one accord, of one mind and judgment. We must be partaking of that early reign which gives us spiritual growth and prepares us for the latter reign where God will empower His generation, His remnant, His body. Let me read this to you. It is rather long, but it's so good. Testimonies to Ministers, page 507. Many have in a great measure failed to receive the former rain. They have not obtained all the benefits that God has thus provided for them. They expect that the lack will be supplied by the latter rain. Don't we hear that being preached from pulpits today? There's nothing for us to do here. Oh, we can't overcome. But when Jesus comes, He's going to change our character in an instant. Have you heard that? That's just a lie from the devil, friend. Now is the time we have to be preparing. We have to be soaking in that early rain. She says, When the richest abundance of grace shall be bestowed, they intend to open their hearts to receive it. They are making a terrible mistake. The work that God has begun in the human heart in giving His light and knowledge must be continually going forward. Every individual must realize his own necessity. The heart must be emptied of every defilement and cleansed for the indwelling of the Spirit. It was by the confession and forsaking of sin, by earnest prayer and consecration of themselves to God, that the early disciples prepared for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Notice what she says. The same work only in greater degree must be done now. Then the human agent had only to ask for the blessing and wait for the Lord to perfect the work concerning him. It is God who began the work and He will finish His work making man complete in Jesus Christ. But there must be no neglect of the grace represented by the former reign. Only those who are living up to the light they have will receive greater light. Unless we are daily advancing in the exemplification of the active Christian virtues, we shall not recognize the manifestations of the Holy Spirit in the latter reign. It may be falling on hearts all around us, but we shall not discern or receive it. 
At no point in our experience can we dispense with the assistance of that which enables us to make the first start. The blessings received under the former reign are needful to us to the end. Yet these alone will not suffice. While we cherish the blessing of the early reign, we must not, on the other hand, lose sight of the fact that without the latter reign, to fill out the ears and ripen the grain, the harvest will not be ready for the sickle, and the labor of the sower will have been in vain. Divine grace is needed at the beginning, divine grace at every step of advance, and divine grace alone can complete the work. There is no place for us to rest in a careless attitude. We must never forget the warnings of Christ. Watch unto prayer. Watch and pray always. A connection with the divine agency every moment is essential to our progress. We may have had a measure of the Spirit of God, but by prayer and faith we are continually to seek more of the Spirit. It will never do to cease our efforts. If we do not progress, if we do not place ourselves in an attitude to receive both the former and latter reign, we shall lose our souls and the responsibility will lie at our own door. Matthew chapter 28 verse 18 Jesus says a Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. You remember that? Remember, when our will cooperates with the will of God, it becomes omnipotent. Jesus has all power to give His people power to overcome sin, power to heal the sick, power to cast out demons, power to raise the dead, the shock and awe of the Lord's army against the enemy of souls. Beloved, He wants to empower His body of believers right now. The sad truth is, we aren't ready. We aren't ready. Let us be ever marching forward beloved, drinking in the early rain, and let us pray for the latter rain, that God will empower us as a people to finish this work, to pass the final test, to meet Jesus face to face. I'll leave you with Jude chapter 1, 24. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, He's able to keep us from falling, friends. To present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. So He can keep us from falling and He can present us faultless because He has kept us from falling. And He does it. He presents us with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Savior. Be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so very, very much for this Holy Sabbath day and the opportunity we've had to come together here and to to learn from your Holy Word. Father, we understand we've been commissioned to do a work for Thee, spreading the Gospel, to sharing the three angels' messages, to warn the world, prepare people for Christ's soon coming. We shy away too often because we look to ourselves instead of up. So we humbly ask, Father, that You will give us more and more of the early rain and prepare us for that latter rain, that You will empower us as a people to finish this, this work so we may go home. Please continue to be with us and angels to strengthen us as an angel was sent to strengthen our Savior there in Gethsemane. Give us the words to speak as we share with our family and our friends and our neighbors about the times we live in. We may pluck an an ember out of the fire. 
Please continue to bless us on this Sabbath day and in the days ahead. Bless us throughout this week that we may witness to at least one person the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And keep us safe so that we can come together next Sabbath and worship Thee in spirit and in truth. We pray in the blessed name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.